presented by our friends at Toddle, which I'll talk about in just a second here, but I wanted to give you Aspire Leaders a shout out. This past month was the largest amount of listens in a month over the past five years. And I just want to say thank you for all of those who have supported the show. So maybe you shared your favorite episode on social media, provided a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or told some colleagues or other leaders about the show. Five years ago in May, my mission was to support leaders in any way possible, but that couldn't happen without your help and support. And I just want to say thank you. Since we're talking about support, I am supported by a fantastic sponsor, which is Toddle. Toddle is an all-in-one teaching and learning platform used by over 40,000 educators around the world. This past March, Toddle hosted the largest virtual gathering for school leaders across the globe. And now they have all of the recordings available to you free with a special pass and the link is in the show notes, or you can also go to joshtamper.com and click on that bit.ly link to get your free access. Now let's start the episode with a brilliant leader, Dr. Amy Matthews Perez, as we discuss the world of leadership in special education. Welcome back everyone to Aspire to Lead, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Amy, thank you so much for being on the Aspire to Lead podcast today. Well, I appreciate you having me as a guest, Joshua. Really, really grateful for the chance to visit with you, get to know you, and just talk about the importance of public education and leadership. I got a chance to learn a little bit about you, but I would love for my listeners to hear about your educational and leadership journey. Sure. Well, um, I'm in my 30th year in public education. I heard someone describe that as, was it three centuries? Oh my goodness. Regardless, it's a really long time. I have held lots of roles, but I've been a general education teacher at the junior high level. You know, that's a special breed right there. I've also been a speech pathologist, a special ed specialist, which is kind of a silly title, but I supervised various and sundry special ed programs in a district. I worked at a county alternative school as the education coordinator for one year and then uh, went back into the public schools as an SLP, was tapped on the shoulder to be an assistant principal, then stepped into the role of director of special ed. I thought for sure I wanted to end my career on a campus because when I was an AP, oh my gosh, it was so fulfilling and that immediate gratification and the hugs and the smiles and yeah, there were hard conversations, but the gratification was what it was all about. So I thought, well, I'm going to end my career. I'm going to retire as a principal. So then I became a principal and five years later, I changed my mind and went back to my uh, homeland of special education. And now I'm a director of special programs, which includes special education and five other programs. But special education is the area that most people associate it with. So there's a a Polaroid picture of a three-hour 3D movie. That is a lot of places in, uh, you know, 30 years. And I'm curious, because you talked about, you know, going from the district level back to campus level, what was your decision to then go back to special education? No, I appreciate you asking that. I was at a, an exceptional school where I was a principal um, and I gave it my all. I gave it every single thing I had and there were lots of variables involved. But at the end of the day, it was not fulfilling to me. I was busy. I was burning all the candles at all the ends. Don't get it twisted. I was given every single ounce of myself to that role. I never felt like I was ahead of the eight ball. Again, extenuating circumstances. But bottom line, Joshua, I just wasn't fulfilled. 
I just wasn't fulfilled. And I think that was a really hard, well, I know that was a really hard decision for me because when people say, oh, you must have failed or you must not have been good at it. No, I, I consider myself successful. When I was hired, we were IR, improvement required, one of those Texas terms, right? And within two years, we had five gold stars. So I know I was at least decent at the position and I had a phenomenal staff. It just, I wasn't going to do it because that's what other people expected. I was going to be true to me. Authenticity is a really big deal to me. And if it, if it's changing who I am and how I function um, and impacting me beyond the, the lives of my job, then it's just not the right fit for me. So I went back to special, special education where it's really challenging, really challenging, lots of job security. Not everybody wants this job, but uh, equally fulfilling, both with students and families and staff. It's just, it's really fulfilling. Okay, I want to lean into the authenticity piece. Well, we're going to talk about special education because that's near and dear to my heart. So I can't wait to dive into that topic. But the authenticity piece, I want to know your opinion on that because I think you're hitting a really strong point there of, of knowing this is not the position that's fulfilling to me. This is not true to myself. So, you know, for someone that maybe is listening who's feeling the exact same way in the position that they're currently in, will you just kind of share the process that you went through to understand that you weren't being your authentic self? Well, I would be happy to. I have a very loving, kind, and brilliant husband, and he he really started that self-reflection for me. He would ask me, are you happy? You seem really tired. Not complaining at all. He said, I know this is what you want to do, but he spurred my self-reflection. And then I spent a lot of time really thinking about, okay, am I doing this because it's what I'm supposed to do? I mean, I did apply for the job, right? I did get hired for the job, but at some point it was a really hard choice to choose what was best for me as opposed to what was best in the eyes of other people. It was not easy to quote unquote disappoint people. People will have their opinions. You know, I'm a firm believer in other people's opinions of me are not my business. I just am. I, I am what I am. What you see is what you get. I'm not good at politics, pretty straightforward, good, bad, or ugly. But I just had to make that call because I could see where it was taking its toll on me. I mean, emotionally. Physically, it just was not the balance of fulfillment and hard work wasn't there. So just a lot of self-reflection. And then, of course, I spoke with people whose opinion I trusted and just spent a lot of time thinking and what if and what if and what if I am your classical overthinker. So I feel like I thought that one to death and then finally just had to take the jump. And really, I started looking for other positions and kind of wanted to leave it. I'm not going to say karma's hands, but whoever's hands. And the, uh, a position came open. I thought, okay, well, let's see what happens. I applied and very quickly I was offered a position I could not resist. So I was like, well, then this is the way it was supposed to be. I've given my all. At some point I have to do what's best for me or what I give to people is not going to be authentic and it's not going to be my best. So it was not an easy decision. It was, you know, months of thinking and reflecting and and conversing again with my husband and other people, my family members that I trust their opinion and really bouncing ideas off of people. But that's how that happened. And then I took the plunge and told my staff on the very last day of school after our end of the school year luncheon, that was about it. Well, I appreciate your transparency with that whole process. I, I know that when you move on to a different position, sometimes there is negative connotations that follow that. And I, I'm so happy that you lean into that reflection process and, and found a position that fulfilled you to the best of its ability and just kudos to you. So I want to move over to the special education topic because I know okay. that's near and dear to your heart and it's Absolutely. something that, you know, I had 
firsthand experience before I even got a teaching license. I was a paraprofessional with special education, mm. almost changed Yay. my major to switch over to special education. Decided not to do that. But when I got to be an administrator, I volunteered to take on special education for pretty much my entire career for a decade. Absolutely loved it. But for you, why was that an area that you you know, moved into and why did you stay in special education for so long? Well, it goes back to when I was in fifth grade, Joshua, which is a long, long time ago. I had a friend of mine who had a brain tumor and passed away as a fifth grade classmate. And I did not know when or how, but I knew in my heart of hearts and brain of brains or in my Amy brain, that's what I call it, my Amy brain. It's not better than your average brain. It's not worse. It's just very, very different. And now the grown up word is what? Neurodiversity, that kind of thing. Anyway, I knew back then in fifth grade that I was going to work with people with special needs. I just knew it. I just didn't know how. And so then I went all through high school, junior college, yada, 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 and realized my path was teacher. I'm going to be a teacher. In junior college, I even tried to follow the money, Joshua. They were like, the, and again, this was back, back, back in the day. They were like, the money is in computer programming. I'm like, well, yeah. So I'm going to take a class in that. And I wrote a program and I must have put a comma instead of a period, but it looped and wouldn't stop. So the professor pulled me aside and said, what other fields have you considered as a career, Amy? I said, well, there's teaching. He said, I think you might want to look back into that. Well, all of my career interest surveys had said teaching. I was just fleetingly chasing that dollar. So got back into teaching, got my undergrad degree at North Texas, but my senior year at North Texas, screaming eagles, rah, I took a phonetics course and I was like, holy moly, this is it. Language is my jam. This is it. I was obsessed. And so I'm the youngest of six children. I do talk a lot, which I kind of told you before we started, you're probably gonna have to edit a little bit of that. But when I was growing up, we had to raise our hand to talk at the dinner table. Okay. And they always called on me last. So there's all the evidence you need that I talk a lot. So I took this next course, fell in love, called my parents. I said, guess what? They were like, tell us, tell us all about it. I said, I know what I want to be. I want to be a speech pathologist. They were like, that's awesome. What does that mean? And I said, well, it's a master's degree and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, wow, we love you so much. That's awesome. You can do whatever you want. I was like, really? I'm a senior in college. I'm about to graduate. They said, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want, Amy. As soon as you graduate and get a job, sweet girl. So I graduated and uh, started teaching junior high, which is a whole nother awesome story. They keep you young there and started working on my master's degree um, in the evenings, in the summer, and so I fell in love with with speech pathology, and that has just been the avenue into the world of special education where I could fulfill what my fifth grade heart knew I would do. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. All right. So as a leader, because you've taken on so many different roles, I want to know mm-hmm. how you know, you started to work with your staff and really empower others? Well, I mentioned authenticity. That's really, really important to me. And I consider myself a leader, not a manager. Although there are times when you do have to manage, right? I had made some notes. I think I should invent the words leadermint and manage ship because it is kind of a blend of the two. You can't be all right, one or the other. But I worked with a lot of managers and they would tell people what to do, how to do it, when to do it and or else. Right. And there are people that like to be told that because it's easy. And in my very humble opinion, because then they can pass the buck if something doesn't work because it wasn't their idea anyway. However, I'm more of a leader than a manager. 
and I get to know people, I form relationships, and I work really, really hard at collaboration because I already know, and I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't have all the best ideas. I have a lot of ideas. And I tell my team, look, it's going to take me about 20, 25 bad ones to get to one decent one. So be patient, but let's process this together. But I'm all about collaboration and I don't have any problem saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. And now my running joke is, I don't know, but I can make it up. And then hopefully I get a chuckle, but then I can find out. I just, I'm very authentic with my team and I never claim to know everything, but I know where to look and I know who to call. And typically I have more time to do that. So that's what I do. I support my team. We meet on a regular basis. We do team building activities, which are not lame. They're, they've, they've laughed and enjoyed every single one of them so far. We've got another one this week, so we'll see how that goes. But if I'm not having fun, if I'm not learning something, then my team's not learning anything. What I have said and said and said is I need you to own your learning. When you learn something, I want you to own it and move forward. Do you have to remember it forever? No, but you can't just know it for the moment and then move on. Don't be a checkbox person. Own your learning and let's learn together. I'm all about that collaboration and communication. I've also explained my leadership style as leading the hard way because it's easier to say, this is what I need you to do. And this is when you need to do it. And this is how you need to do it and tell me when it's done. I don't do that. I say, okay, let's have a conversation. What are your perspectives? What needs to be done? Yada, yada, yada. How do we need to do it? There are lots of options. There are good ways and bad ways. What's the most effective way for us the people that are doing it, not just the best way according to some agency or some other district's way of doing it. What works best for us? I am an outside the box thinker. I tell people I will try anything as long as it's not illegal. Just give me an idea and let's roll with it. If we can work it out, let's work it out. I will try it because the work has to be effective, not only for the people receiving the effort, but for the people doing the effort because that's how they get invested. They make an effective use of their time and their energy and their brains and their thoughts. So I lead the hard way with a lot of collaboration, a lot of communication and no ego. That's another thing I say all the time. I say, y'all, it's we go, not ego. Check your ego at the door. We are all on the same team. We are moving forward. We are going for the learning. We are doing it together. It's we, not me. Love it. So I want to go back to what you said about flushing out good ideas, because I think some of the most hardworking and creative people I've ever worked with is in the role of special education. And so for your staff, and this could be, well, you've been in many roles, but even like director of special education or just special education on campus, how did you get people to provide potentially bad ideas, potentially fail, work through those challenging aspects? Because as educators, yeah. we want to be successful right away. And, you know, I always felt like it was really difficult sometimes to kind of massage that out of people. So was there anything that you did to help them with that creative process? Absolutely. I failed first. I failed first. I brought forward what I really thought were decent ideas and they, it was okay. It was a safe place for them to say, yeah, no, we're not doing that. And I was like, okay, tell me why. So I failed first. I always modeled what I wanted from them. Even if it was wait time, I can model that. I'm not good at that yet, but I can do it. I uh, also tune in to responses and who's speaking and who's not. And I'm very, very intentional, sometimes to a point of annoying, of getting everyone included. Even if I have to call you by name and say, so Joshua, I think that's a terrible idea. What do you think? And just trying to get their input. And then it's a cycle for me. You, you listen to their input. You value their input. If you can connect it to the goal or the mission or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, you do that and you give them credit and then you circle back and say, okay, you had such a great idea about 
yada, yada, yada. What do you think about this? Because I really like the way you think. Um, so you circle back and highlight how they contributed to the solution. Even if their contribution was tearing down my idea, I'm perfectly fine with that. Like I said, I have no ego in the game. It's all about that. So a funny story is when I was a principal, I worked with a phenomenal assistant principal and an equally phenomenal instructional specialist. And we met once a week, like it or not, talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, what's happening, what's not happening, what should be happening. So I would always throw out these ideas and my uh, instructional specialist would, and remember, I was there for five years. My instructional specialist would go, hmm, let me think about that. So it took me about three years to say, does that mean that's a bad idea? She said, oh, absolutely, Dr. Perez. I just couldn't say it to your face yet. That absolutely means that we are not doing that. That's a horrible idea. So now we have a standing joke between us. Hmm, let me think about that. And then my assistant principal was what I call my hole puncher. She would punch holes in everything that I brought up because you got to have somebody to do that because everybody's perspective matters. Everybody's perspective matters because other people are going to think things you can't and won't based on experience alone. I mean, based on lots of variables, Joshua, but based on experience alone. So my assistant principal was my hole puncher and she would punch holes in my ideas or say, yeah, but what about this? And how are we going to do that? And what if this? So we were just a phenomenal team, but that's how I get people to contribute ideas. I fail first. I give the bad ideas first and I make it okay to learn and I highlight when they teach me something. So when I learn something from them, I'm sure clear and intentional about communicating that. I'm not just going to take that for granted. I'm going to say, oh my gosh, Joshua, I didn't realize that. Thank you for teaching me that. And I'm going to use that going forward. I'm going to have to come back to you because you know I'm going to forget, right? If I didn't write it down, it's not going to happen, but you taught me something. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I do that in my whole life, not just at work. I was just talking to my husband this weekend. I said, you know, you've taught me how to be more strategic about things and not so, oh, oh, well, let's see what happens. Whatever happens, happens. You know, so I'm very intentional about highlighting what I've learned from people. And I would like to think that makes at least my coworkers and my team feel safer and establishes that relationship because I've placed value on their contribution and their input. I'm going to pause for a moment to let you know that this episode is also brought to you by Papa Rob's Coffee. This is by far my favorite coffee in the world because it is incredibly fresh and tastes amazing. Head over to paparobscoffee.com to see the many varieties of wonderful medium and dark blends. And when you check out, of course, don't forget to use the code ASPIRE15 to get 15% off your entire order. This is only for Aspire to Lead listeners, so make sure you take advantage of this code. Now, back to the episode. Amy, I want to transition because you're doing some amazing things, and I know you're going to be presenting here soon at Region 4, and then you're also going to be presenting at the uh -huh. conference, and so yes, sir. I want to know what you're going to be presenting on. I'm going to be presenting on um, getting good goals, how to write good goals, and you know in your special ed brain, you're going, oh, I don't write IEPs. I don't need that training. No, 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 no. This is just about goals. It could be our T-test goals right? It could be, and this is Texas lingo. So if you're not from Texas, I'm sorry. It could be T-test. It could be slow. It could be MTSS. It could be all kinds of goals. So it's called getting good goals. And we're going to talk about what it takes to write a good goal, measure a good goal, all that, all that good goal stuff. So that's what I'm presenting on because goals affect all of us. And it's not smart goal training either. It's something completely different. And hopefully, more exciting than smart goal training. I'll tell you, we're going to start by listening to Elvis Presley. That's how the presentation is going to start with taking care of business. That's how we're starting. Well, you can't go wrong with the king. 
Right. That's kind of how I feel. And TCBC is the acronym I use when writing goals and teaching people to write goals. So, so let's talk about another thing that's in the progress. You're writing two books. So I want to know about those books and what the target audience is. Well, I am writing two books. I've gone from them being two book series to two big fat books. So I'm really haven't decided. I'm really leaning towards series because that just makes it more consumable in my very humble, non-published opinion. <laughs> um, but you'll be shocked to know one of them is about special education and the process of special education and bringing all the stakeholders to the table at every step of the process. And then the other one is, um, you'll also probably not be shocked. It's about 504. It's the exact same premise, bringing everyone to the table about all of the stuff that happens in 504. Because, you know, both of those processes, special education and 504, can be so overwhelming, so intimidating, so much legalese, right? All the acronyms, you know, do you have a, we're having an ARD with an IEP and we've got the FIE and the, it just goes on and on and on. It can be very intimidating. So I want to make both of those processes very real, very authentic for those that participate. And my writing is very conversational. I mean, I'm going to tell you how I see it. You know, like principals, don't call your diagnostician while your child's being tested. Don't do it. You're not going to get the answer you want. Don't do it. So it's very conversational. And then I've, of course, got stories in there from, from my days in each role that I've served. And I've got some pictures of some notes from some students and staff that um, I've gotten over my 30 years. So it's a, it's a passion project for sure. Well, and it's one that's really needed. There's so many pieces to a committee and so many times there's information that's lost or someone's not at the table that needs to be, or, I mean, there's just so many components to special education and you know, when a campus does it right, it's so powerful and uplifting to a child and to the parents and can be such a beautiful right. relationship. But then when something's missing or there's a kink in the system in some way, it mm -hmm. can fall apart quickly. And um, it just is so harmful for the child and, and just public education in general. So I know that this is going to be a wonderful resource and I can't wait for it to come out. I hope so. I really hope so. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's also for parents because yeah. they're one of those stakeholders. Most so really... If I'm going to just be perfectly transparent and authentic, like I've talked about being, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say, I feel like my part of my mission, because my mission is multifaceted, just like my Amy brain, but part of my mission is to help people not react when they hear the word special, the term special education, because it evokes a reaction of some kind, typically emotional, but I want to eventually change that to cool this is a way where we get to be unique and meet unique needs of people and we could do things different it's going to be awesome so it's kind of my long-term vision is to make special education not scary not overwhelming not paperwork laden not legally you know frightening or intimidating that's kind of my long-term goal and that book series is just kind of the first step well it's it's very needed and you're right there's either a stigma or something that, that is generated from that term. So can't wait for those books. And then you also have another, well, you have another project coming out very, very soon, which is your website. Yes, that that project is evolving. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm one of those, did I mention I'm an overthinker? So I am one of those ones that wants it to be perfect before I publish it. But everybody I talk to is like, there's no such thing as perfect. Just publish it. I'm like, but, 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 so I've, I've got a coworker that's willing to sit down with me and finish it. And then maybe we'll hit the publish button. What I don't want is for people to, when I publish it, go there and, and still have questions. I hate that. 
because another one of my missions in communication is to give you all the information you want and need. There's no reason for someone not to know something is my humble opinion. There's no reason not to know. So if you come to my website and you're like, but what about then I feel like I failed. So I've got to get over that overthinking part. Right. But I might need to do an intervention right now. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. If it is a landing page for people to connect with you to get the information that they need. So they can connect with me after they get there. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. That that's helpful. That's helpful. Listeners, you heard it that she's going to publish immediately <laughs> so that you can connect with her to get all of the wonderful resources that she has. Well, the goal is July. So how about that? Before my uh, before my conference, um, the inclusion conference, I would like to have it published. So I feel like that's reasonable, right? One hundred percent reasonable. <laughs> Considering it's done. It's done. It's ready. Yeah. It's close enough. <laughs> well, Amy, I'm going to ask you a question I ask all of my guests, which is for any aspiring or current leader, if there is one thing they can do tomorrow or next week to enhance their leadership journey, what would you advise them to do? Well, a couple of things. I'll keep it short, I promise. One is don't subscribe to what you think society expects you to do. Do what's going to fulfill you. You know, there are a lot of people out there that think, oh, when you're a junior high principal, the next step is high school principal. No, it doesn't matter. Do what fulfills you. And if you don't know what that is, then do what you're doing and figure it out. Reflect, take time and really, really think about what makes you happy. What makes you glad that you gave a thousand percent at work that day? Um, do not subscribe to the expectations of society. Just do what makes you fulfilled. That would be my first advice. Even though it's hard, there's your forewarning. It's hard. It's just hard, but you can do it with reflection and friends and reach out to me. I'd be happy to process it with you, but do what fulfills you. And that's going to change. FYI, that's going to change. So if you've got that habit of reflection and um, being in tune to what your strengths are and what your needs are and what you need to have in place in order to be successful, that's going to help you tune into what fulfills you. I mean, I have all kinds of strategies, Joshua, all kinds of silly, silly strategies. I'm going to tell you a silly one. Where I live, there is a person um, whose name, just a drive-by neighbor, right? My husband and I drive by is a wave neighbor, right? His name is Ruben. We've spoken with Ruben three or four times. I uh, could not remember his name. I don't know why. I don't try to figure that out. But guess what I call him in my Amy brain? I call him Sandwich. Because there's my association. When I hear Sandwich, when I hear myself say Sandwich, I think Ruben. And then I can say, hey, Ruben instead of, hey, sandwich, which is what my brain is saying. So you've got to figure out what strategies work for you to make you as successful as possible. So that would be my first bit of advice. But the second one would be always, always, always see the able, not the label. Do not treat students, staff, parents with whatever label they have or they've been given. Always see the able, not the label. And I know that's very common in special education. You know, in, in our district, we don't have any special ed kids. We have none. We have students with special needs. That's it. We don't have, you know, any GT kids. We don't have any EL kids. We don't label. We see the able, not the label. So that would be my second piece of advice. And the same thing for staff. You know, if you've got a temper tantrum Tammy teacher, don't see the label. See what she's able to do. Find her strengths. Find what her needs are and then meet those needs as a leader. So just those two pieces of advice would probably be the top two pieces I would give. All right, Amy, I want folks to connect with you as soon as possible. So how may they do that? 
Well, um, I got active on Twitter about a year ago. I have had an account for quite a while, but didn't really know how to use it. And in the role that I was in, I didn't have time to use it. But now I have time to use it and my district promotes it and it's awesome. So uh, I am at Dr. Grow to Know, D-R-G-R-O-W-T-O-K-N-O-W for obvious reasons, right? Because I know I need to grow and I need to grow in what I know. I told you, I'm a deaf, and I mentioned I'm a language nerd. I'm a word nerd. I'm all about that. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook, Dr. Amy MP. And then I'm on LinkedIn with Dr. Amy Matthews dash Perez. And I'll have all those links in the show notes. So make sure that you're clicking on those and connecting with Amy. Amy, I was thinking this entire interview, it would have been an honor to work with you in special education. Oh, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate that. I really mean that. Like I said, I've worked with some fantastic leaders in special education, but um, it's obvious that you have a heart for that area and that you're making a difference, not only in your district, but all over the country as you are expanding and speaking and, and reaching out. And I can't wait for your books to come out. Thank you so much for being on the Spider Lead podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to join your fight, join your push, join your cheer section, and inspiring those folks to become leaders wherever they are and whatever role they are that fulfills them, that's authentic to them. So thanks for the opportunity. 